about the fight for Scottish freedom, right? A few months ago, I learned that Caitlin had never seen this movie before. And I, the moment I found that out, kept saying, oh my gosh, you have to see this, right? I just did everything I could to try to get her to watch it, especially after we spent some of our honeymoon in Scotland. I was like, come on, you've got to see this movie. It's a classic. It's great. Well, I don't know exactly how it all kind of shaped up, but right after New Year's, we were with her family, and I made some comment about Braveheart, and one thing led to another, and the next thing I knew, we were watching it together as a family. This was amazing. Um, and so we watched the movie, went through the, the epic story, and ever since we watched it just a few months ago, there's this line from the movie that has stuck with me. Uh, so if you've seen the movie, you may be thinking of probably what is the most famous scene when William Wallace and all of his men ride out onto the battlefield to find a crowd of nervous Scotsmen, right? And with that epic blue war paint on his face, he begins that famous speech. He says, I am William Wallace, and I see an army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny, you have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do without freedom? And he asked them, will you fight? And one of the soldiers in the crowd, you know, after much mumbling, kind of shouts out, no, we will not fight. We will run and we will live. And William Wallace responds, I fight and you may die. Run and you will live. At least a while. And then dying in your beds many years from now, he asks them, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom, right? And then, you know, he shouts that, he rides around on his horse. It is a powerful moment in the movie, and probably one of the most famous ones. But this is not the one that stuck in my head the most. The line that I'm talking about comes a little bit later in the movie. And William Wallace is not out on a battlefield, but rather in a prison cell. He's been caught, and he's awaiting his execution. And the princess, who's fallen in love with him, comes to visit him and tries to do what she can to save his life. And she says to him, I come to beg you, swear allegiance to the king that he might show you mercy if you can only live. And William Wallace responds, if I swear to him, then all that I am is dead already. And she begins weeping and says, you will die and it will be awful. And he answers, every man dies. Not every man really lives. And that's the line that has stuck with me since watching that. It's just kind of played through my head from time to time, and I've revisited it. It is challenging, right? And it causes us to wonder, what does it mean to really live? Right? That line is not scripture, but a line like this one would be very much at home amidst the Gospel of John, which we've been reading. 
over the last couple of months. John is filled with challenging sayings about life and living and what it means to really be alive. The opening of John, it says in in the very first words, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. It says, in him was life. And that life was the light of all people. And then, of course, there's that famous verse that we probably all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life, right? Throughout the gospel of John, Jesus constantly says things like this about life. In chapter 4, he says, those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up into eternal life. In chapter 6, he says, the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In chapter 10, another famous one, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The Gospel of John is about life and what it means to really live. In our passage today, we will encounter yet another one of these sayings. And it honestly doesn't sound all that different from William Wallace. In our passage today, Jesus will say, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is where we're going to be today. That's where we find that verse. And today we're going to be finishing our series on the signs in the Gospel of John. And we'll see a sign that brings all of these things together. It will show us what all this talk about death and life and what it means to really live is all about. And ultimately, as we've been saying, it's going to show us who this is all about. This sign, perhaps more than any of the others, points us to Jesus. It shows us who he is and who we are called to be in him. And this one, kind of like last week, is another lengthy story. It unfolds over 45 verses. So I thought once more, rather than me reading them all to you, we would watch them. So turn your eyes to the screen and hear the word of the Lord. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha 
and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. They replied. Jesus wept. 
Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Well, as we often say, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story and for the invitation to life and for meeting us amidst death. God, I pray that as we reflect on this story and on these words, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this sign, like some of the others that we've looked at over the past several weeks, has a very similar pattern, right? It begins with someone bringing a need to Jesus. And his first response to that need is an initial not yet, right? But then as we continue to see the story, uh, he moves forward and works the sign, and it ends with many responding by believing in him. And there's another similarity in this sign as well to some of the others that we've seen. If you think all the way back to the very beginning of this series. You may remember in John's prologue, those first opening verses, it says, the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, right? Glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And then after the first sign of water to wine, John summarizes what had happened. He says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. And he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So you see, the sign doesn't only have a similar pattern as it unfolds, but it also has the same purpose. 
as the other signs. And that is to reveal the glory of God to the people. Just look at the start of our passage. Just after he receives the news of Lazarus, Jesus says in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for what? God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then toward the end of the passage, just before he calls Lazarus from the tomb, Jesus says in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so this story is literally surrounded by the glory of God at its start and at its finish. But though this is a story about glory and about life, it is also a story about death. And so between the glory of the beginning and the glory of the end, it's a story filled with grief. And this is important because isn't this so often where we find ourselves? Just think about it. We can look back to the beginning, right? We can look back to creation when God spoke and there was light and he saw that it was good. And when we look there, we see life and we see glory. Or we can look ahead. We can look to the end, to the day of redemption when Jesus will return and make everything new. And when we look there, we see it's full of life and glory. But between the life and glory of the beginning and the life and glory of the end, we experience an awful lot of death and grief. And I think that this story shows us how to be a people living between glories, how to be a people living amidst grief and death. So this morning, I want to talk about that grief and how it is that we live with it. And so I want to say, what do we do with our grief? That's the first question I want to explore. The second one is, where do we go with our grief? And then finally, at the end, just like the story, we'll come back around to the glory of God. And so first, what do we do with our grief? Some of you may be familiar with the five stages of grief that are talked about. Uh, There's denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and acceptance. Some of you heard this language before. Uh, A cycle that we go through in the midst of grieving. And at the center of that grieving process, there are two key emotions. Anger and sadness, right? And both are natural and, I think, necessary responses to grief. And to reflect on these, I think we can look at the two sisters in the story, Mary and Martha. Because though they both come to Jesus with the exact same words, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, they come seemingly with with different attitudes, right? Martha's response to grief is assertive. She hears that Jesus is coming and she marches out to meet him. And the video depicts her nearly scolding Jesus, right? Saying to Jesus, why weren't you here? This is not far from the psalmist who cries out to God, why have you forgotten me? But we're not very comfortable with our own anger very often. 
So we try to mute it. We try to ignore it, to forget it. Or maybe we just passive-aggressively pass it out to other people around us, right? None of this really works, though. And when we try to ignore our anger, it festers, and that grief that we're carrying remains. Keeping this bottled up can actually keep a person locked up in grief for years. And some of you might know what that's like. Maybe you're even captive to it now. But I believe that there is hope. There is somewhere we can go with our anger and grief. But before we get to that, I want to also talk about the other response to grief, right? The other is sadness. And we see this with Mary, because she didn't assertively run out to meet Jesus, but she stayed at home, it says in verse 20. And when she finally does come to Jesus, she comes with the very same words as her sister, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But she says this weeping, having fallen to Jesus' feet. Because I think some of us respond to grief, not with anger, but with an immensity of sadness, brokenheartedness. And again, this is something we're often not very comfortable with. We often prefer trite answers or maybe just sort of white-knuckled perseverance rather than the vulnerability of actually grieving. But again, if we don't let ourselves weep, if we don't really mourn the things that we have to grieve, then we can find ourselves captive to sadness for years. And so we can't hold our grief in. We can't bottle up our anger in tears, or maybe the problem is that we can, and that we're way too good at it. We're way too good at holding it all in, and we don't know what to do with it. We don't know where to go with it. So how do we let it out? We can't keep it on our own. We have to bring it somewhere. So where do we go with our grief? Well, we're in church, so the Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? We go to the same place that these sisters went. We go to Jesus. In the midst of grief and in the face of death, we must go to the one who is himself, the resurrection and the life. In verse 25, it's what he says. And when we go to Jesus, we don't just get trite answers or empty, white-knuckled endurance, right? When we come to Jesus, we find a spacious welcome for all of our responses to grief, both anger and sadness. Perhaps most surprisingly, we'll find that we're actually not even alone in our anger and sadness, because Jesus is also angry and sad. Jesus actually grieves with us. Isn't that what we see in the story? 
Just look at verse 33. It says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. And then verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, and yet perhaps the most profound. Jesus wept. You see, we're not alone in our grief. Jesus joins us there. And it's easy to lose the full force of this in our formal Bible translations because Jesus meets us both emotionally and also viscerally. He is familiar with the physical response to grief. And that's what we see here. He doesn't just meet the grief that we feel in our hearts. He also knows the grief that we feel in our bodies. Do you know that feeling? That visceral ache? That's what's described here in verse 33. A great concoction of emotional and visceral experience. It says Jesus was greatly disturbed and deeply moved. Some translations say troubled and moved. That first word, disturbed or troubled, is a difficult one to really translate, to bring into English. It's a word that has a sense about it, not just of disturbance, but really of anger and of indignation. Jesus looks around at all of the people weeping around him. He looks down at his friend Mary, who is crying. And it's almost as though he looks directly into the face of death. And he does not only feel sad, he feels angry. Because Jesus was there in the beginning. Whenever God created and saw that all things were good. And now the word that was in the beginning with God has taken on flesh, is dwelling with us, and he sees what death has done to the good creation. And he's angry about it. And so he's greatly disturbed or troubled. And then it says he is deeply moved. This is a word that's also used to describe stormy waters, right? It can mean shaken or stirred up. And anyone who's experienced anger and sadness, who knows what it is to feel grief, knows the experience of being greatly disturbed and deeply moved, right? It's that first initial blow, that pit in the stomach, that lump in the throat, And then it's that deep shaking that you almost begin to feel. And all your hair is standing on end, right? It's your heart rate rising and that hot feeling coming across your face. And then, then it happens. Then the tears finally break forth. And that's what we see in verse 35. The visceral grief that Jesus is experiencing breaks forth, and it says, Jesus wept. You see, when you go to Jesus with your grief, 
You're going to someone who is not a stranger to that very thing. He knows the anger. He knows the rage. He knows that pit in the stomach and that lump in the throat. And he knows those tears. So when you go to Jesus, you are welcomed. You will know that you are not alone in your grief. But here's the question that I want to ask. Why have to grieve at all? Right? I mean, Mary and Martha kind of had a point. If there's all that glory at the beginning and all this glory at the end, why does this grief have to be in the middle? You know, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. I mean, it's nice that Jesus comes and joins them and grieves with them, but wouldn't it have been all the more glorious if he had prevented all of this from happening in the first place? Well, I think the sign is an answer to that question. And not just an answer to that question, but really a glimpse at the heart of what our faith is ultimately about. You see, Christianity is ultimately about resurrection. It's about resurrection. In verse 25, Jesus didn't just say, I am the life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Christianity is about resurrection. And in order to experience resurrection, you first have to experience what? Death. In verse 4, when Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death, he wasn't lying. This illness does not lead to death. It's for God's glory. He wasn't lying about that. Rather, what he was saying is this illness does not lead to death, but rather through death. And that is God's glory. The glory of God is ultimately seen not in preventing death, but defeating it. In delivering us through death. That's what this sign points to. It would not have been a more glorious thing for Jesus to have prevented death in the first place. It is all the more glorious for him to bring life from death. This is what the sign points to. And this is why I think baptism is one of the core marks of following Christ. Baptism is a picture of life, not by itself, but life through death. It's a picture of death and resurrection. And this is what I think William Wallace meant. Right, when he said, every man dies, but not every man really lives. When he said this, he was saying, in order to really live, I must die. And that, I think, is what Jesus is saying to us through this sign. Life is found through death. And this is 
is the glory of God. So, so this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of a season called Lent, right? And Christians all around the world are going to gather together on Wednesday. They're going to have ashes placed on their heads and hear the words, remember that you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Ash Wednesday is a reflection on our mortality, a reflection on the reality of death. But then fast forward 40 days, and you find Christians again gathering around the world to hear some other words. He is risen. And they all respond, he is risen indeed. Those 40 days in between are called Lent. And it begins in death, and it culminates in life. And the season of Lent may seem strange to you, right? It might seem like some sort of weird Catholic thing, but before it was Catholic, it was just Christian. Here's maybe another way of thinking about this season that is called Lent. Take that picture of baptism, right? That image of dying with Christ and being raised with him. And then stretch that picture out over 40 days. That is the season of Lent. It is a season of dying to ourselves and of living with Christ. It's ultimately a season of practicing resurrection. Which means that first, we must die. So we're about to enter into this season of Lent together as a church. And there are a number of ways that we're going to be practicing it as a congregation and ways that I want to challenge you to practice it personally. You may have seen a table out there in the lobby on your way in that has some resources that we're going to be able to use throughout this season. I'm going to share a little bit more about that later. But for now, as we sit with this story, I want to leave you with the words that Jesus says. And the question that he asks, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he asks, do you believe this? So do you?